Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Megan. And this is Cinema Super Collider, where we're smashing up cinema one movie at a time. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here, my friend. Can your heart stand the shocking fact about cinema, week on Cinema Super Collider, we are taking a stroll down Midnight Movie Lane with the original Midnight Movie, Eraserhead, by David Lynch. Yeah, this is a tough, difficult, interesting movie, and not the kind of thing we usually do on this show. No, it's not, because it's it's one of those movies that um, doesn't really have a story so much as it has a lot of compelling things to look at ideas to squish around in your brain, things to be confused about, which happens, I think, in a lot of David Lynch films. It's just that this one in particular, this was his first feature film. And because of this film, his career really was launched into a more mainstream way. Yeah. David Lynch, in this movie particularly, got the reputation of being the weirdest, most way out thing that there was. And definitely. I, I, I don't know that there's nothing that existed at that time or since that isn't in some way weirder, but this is about as strange and unusual a movie with wide appeal that you will ever see. Indeed. It happens to be one of those films that you tell you, like you see it and then you tell your friends about this weird fucked up thing you've seen. And it's like the spoiled milk thing, except it's not spoiled milk. It's a, a weird movie. No, but it's, your point is good. It's, it's like, like it's that. like I saw this thing and it, it was so strange. You you got to see it here. Taste this milk. Taste tell this me, milk. It's, tell me. Yeah, it's gross. Well, and in this case, it is kind of gross. It's not. There's some kind of disturbing visuals in this. Everything about film. this movie is ugly and grotesque. And I mean grotesque in the sense that it is so re- repellent as it's compelling to look at it. It's it's grotesque in the truest sense of the word grotesque, not just meaning gross beyond belief, but so so sort of repulsive to look at that you can't look away. And yes. there's a lot of this film that's like that. Yes. So at the top of these episodes, I generally turn to Eric and I say, so Eric, what happens in Eraserhead? A young man knocks up his girlfriend and she gives birth to some strange creature and he is condemned to care for it for a period of time while he kind of goes insane, I think, is one way of looking at it. I mean, I think the basic elements of the story are a guy, his girlfriend, and their sort of mutant hellspawn baby. Right. And that's that's really the bare minimum of that's what... That's as much story as you're going to get out of this. And there's an affair that happens in the middle, question mark shrug. Sort of. With the neighbor across the hall. In a pool in the middle of the in bed. In the middle of their bed. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what happens in the middle of your... I actually yeah. like that visual a lot. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I do too. And that's the thing. That's what this movie is. That movie is like, you start talking about it and then you're like... Oh, well, that's right. I really liked the thing that they did in that part because it was very striking or like it was very interesting and disturbing and made me think about this thing. But you don't necessarily have to think about the movie as a whole in order in Toto. I know. I disagree. Really? I disagree. Uh, and I made a point of when we screened the movie this time for the show, We this is something we never do. No. We never do, but I, I kind of insisted. I didn't have to like twist your arm or anything. Nope, but, but you did. So, you were like, we're going to do insist. it this way. I said, we're going to turn out the lights. We're watching it in the evening in the dark with the lights out and no cell phones, no laptops, no iPads, no nothing looking things up to distract us. We were going to experience all 87 minutes of it as a continuous film. 
Which and, we did. Which we did. And we, we quipped a little bit back and forth and said a few things here and there, but we were mostly quiet and respectful of the thing and watched it the way it's meant to be watched. And I don't think that you can get the right, I don't think that you can get the, uh, the David Lynch Eraserhead experience out of just watching clips of this on YouTube. No, that's not what I was saying. What I was saying is, when you think about the film, you don't have to think about it as a linear, like after the fact that you watched it. Right. So you've watched the whole thing. Right. But you don't have to, like when you think about the, when you think about most movies, you think about the story of the movie. This happens, then this, this happens, happens, which causes this, which then leads to that, which eventually results in this. Exactly. I feel like this film is is the the construction of a bunch of pebbles in a row as you watch it. And then at the end of it, you just scoop all the pebbles up together, you put them in a bowl, and then you can pick them out and just look at them one by one. There isn't a strong... Yeah, I agree with that. There's not a strong linear story driving it where you could watch a scene from... I mean, there are certain parts that clearly happen before other parts, but the vast majority of parts of this movie could be swapped in and out various different times. Yes. It's kind of timeless. Oftentimes at the beginning of the episode, I ask you, would you recommend this film? I think we would both say unreservedly yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, one of the things I think is most compelling about uh, Eraserhead is what kind of what you were referring to. You, you've got to see this movie. Have you not seen this movie? You should see it. You should see it. Now, I know a lot of people who are going to say, oh, yeah, I've seen it or I've seen parts of it or it was on a party and we watched it a little bit. I'm saying that really it's absolutely worth your time. It's not, it's going to be uncomfortable for you. Yes. Okay. Let me just say that this is not going to be an easy thing to sit and watch, but it's really, really worth it to turn out the lights, sit down, turn this thing on and watch it from beginning to end, realizing that it's going to kind of put you through the ringer and make you feel icky and bad at times. And it's going to make you feel like you're going to jump out of your skin at times and it's going it's going to make you feel things in your body and in your mind which is something a lot of movies don't do at all right because they're simply put in front of us to be entertaining for the period of time that they are existing on the screen yes this is an art film now i i, I mean i think i don't know that we need to go into any more detail about story elements or anything other than just talk about different scenes and different visuals as as it happens in the film i mean i don't think that there's there's a whole lot to be gained by the, talking about like, like going said, through no like part we said by part the, it, and honestly i just watched the movie and i i know that things happen in a particular order but my brain doesn't kind of care that that happened my brain just wants to like remind me of things that were in the movie and that's yeah. that, I think that's kind of what I was trying to say before. It's just like I I just saw this movie and I don't know that I could reliably tell you this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. OK. 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 So I'm going to go a little bit against what I just said 30 seconds ago. And, yes. and let's kind of go through this movie as I recall it, sort of uh, section by section. Yeah. I think before we even do that, we should mention that this film is like a super favorite film of a number of very influential and well-known A-list directors. Um, John Waters is one of them. In fact, John Waters, I think, was the one who convinced one of the midnight movie theaters that were, were actually running midnight movies or doing a midnight showing to show this film, if I remember correctly. That was correctly. a thing in the 70s, and that's another whole issue. Right. Well, the 70s was really the birth of the midnight showing of the cult film, yeah. right? And Eraserhead was one of the, if not the first one of these these cult films that really gained a following in that time slot. Right. There were other films, too. Pink Flamingos, which is a John Waters film, was one of those films that The did. Harder They Come was another one. The Harder Rocky they, Horror Picture Show Rocky was Horror another. Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, Behind the Green Door, which is a porno. There's a really super great documentary that Eric and I cannot remember the name of uh -huh. that is all about these particular films that were shown at midnight at, at a combination of theaters in New York and then also in Los Angeles. And it's an HBO documentary. And if you can remember the name of it or figure it out from that and find it, it's super worth watching. Yeah. If we remember the name of it, we'll put it in the show notes somewhere. So John Waters, Stanley Kubrick. This was a big uh, movie that he found very influential and fascinating. And he actually made the cast of The Shining watch this film, among others, to get into the right mindset to make The Shining. And, you know, just from a 
sort of to psych- torture them. Yeah, like it's from a psychological horror kind of standpoint. Yeah. Um, George Lucas was very impressed with this film and actually asked David Lynch to direct Return of the Jedi, which Lynch <laughs> declined. It would have been a very, very different Star Wars Episode Six. Oh man, could you imagine? No. What a David Lynch like no. that's a green light game right there. That's a that is hard to even imagine. Like I can't even imagine what that would be. It, what, what that would have been would be closer to David Lynch's Dune yes. than it would be to, which David Lynch would go on to make years later. Which, right, he did go on to make uh, years later. But another director that was impressed with him was Mel Brooks. Yes. The of, funny of- man Mel Brooks was impressed with him and got him on board to direct The Elephant Man, which Mel Brooks produced. He did. And it won Academy Awards. It was nominated. Uh, I think it won the Academy Award for Best Picture. I'm not sure. I feel like maybe John Hurt won for Best Actor. Mm, could possibly be. Because he was the Elephant Man, right? It was Yes. It was definitely an Oscar movie. Mm-hmm. And very mm-hmm. weird. Uh, sort of unsurprisingly given what we, what we start with, with his first feature. And another big fan of this film was H.R. Geiger, who... <laughs> the Swiss artist who... Who, the, who is most famous, obviously most famous, for doing the cover of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's album, Brain Salad Surgery. I mean, really, that would that's that's the thing that most people would know H.R. Giger for. And then there's a small percentage of you that would know him for designing the xenomorph aliens in the movie Alien and Aliens and so forth and so on. Yeah, I guess and, that's probably... And such. Now, the interesting thing about the H.R. Geiger thing with, with David Lynch is, if you've seen Jodorowsky's Dune, you know that Jodorowsky had hit up H.R. Geiger to be the creature consultant and art consultant on number of parts of what his Dune was going to look like. Well, he didn't get to direct Dune. David Lynch got to direct Dune. But David Lynch thought that H.R. Geiger had stolen some of his shit from Eraserhead and therefore did not want to work with him. Right. Interesting film facts with Megan and Eric. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a ton of interesting stuff here. And b- before I go, we let we go into recapping this uh, such as it is. I want to ask you mm-hmm. why what makes this film not a pile of incoherent crap. Why, if anyone else were to put those images and string them together, maybe not these exact images, but do a, do a film that contains very much of the same ugly, depressing, confusing, dark, illogical, noisy, grating, distressing images together in black and white and abuse you with them for 90 minutes, you'd say that was a pretentious pile of artsy-fartsy bullshit crap claptrap. And why, what makes this art where somebody else doing something really similar, it wouldn't be? I'm not saying it's not a bunch of pretentious art. (laughs) What? I'm going to throw that out there because this is the, this is the thing that launched a million pretentious art student filmmakers. It did. I can just, I just know that there's a million shitty projects out there that somebody saw this movie and thought, I can do that. And then they made a crappy version of it. So I'm going to. Part of it is that it's the original. I would agree. I'm going to lead with, I'm not saying it's not that. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing about David Lynch is he constructs these bizarre landscapes of art and thought and ideas and you see it again and again and again in his work one of my favorite uh films is mulholland drive which makes a little more sense than eraserhead but kind of maybe not it's just got a lot of ideas in it but what we do when we see somebody like lynch put something like this together versus say like a neil breen (laughs) put something Let's, uh, this, I know we're, we're Neil laughing. Breen makes more sense than this movie does. Absolutely. And it is very clear that one of Neil Breen's inspirations and influences is David Lynch. Has to be. It has to be. The difference is there is something about the work and the quality of what David Lynch puts on screen that we trust as viewers that we want to see more of. He's give, he's giving us an opportunity to say, that's a bunch of garbage. But he's also opening a door for us to see something kind of unique and cool and interesting and thought provoking. And he's able to do at the beginning of his works, 
an establishment of trust with his audience that allows us to take the journey with him through the film. See, now I agree with you. I agree with you down the line 100%. But I can even, I can even hear when you talk about it, you talk about David Lynch's works and we're taking a journey with him. You wouldn't talk that way about, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of any old hack director. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't talk that way about Michael Bay's the 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 works of Michael Bay. He doesn't well, do works. No, does he, he? he makes he makes movies. Well, I, he makes pictures. I think you could say that he has a body of work. I think I think so, but I'm I'm saying you but his, immediately categorize what he's doing as some kind of an art project. You were seeing an art project. It absolutely is 100. percent There's a difference in. In film and honestly in music, in any any of the mediums of art that we or I let me let me back that up. Any of the mediums of entertainment that we consume mm-hmm. as human beings. And we consume all kinds of different forms of entertainment. Television, film, art, music, theater, dance, whatever. And there's a sliding scale, right? On one side of it is pure entertainment value with no resounding takeaways. And then on the other end of the scale, it's art for art's purpose. It's art to create. It's it's something that is to be thought about and mulled over and examined and talked about and whatnot. And it is not saying that something can't be both of those things. But on the sliding scale, that puts it right in the middle. So a lot of films end up being somewhere in the middle because it, it's it's not only something that's really entertaining and that we enjoy, but it's also something we think about and talk about, but maybe just not as much. Lynch's stuff skews way further onto the right side where we think about it and we look at it as though it would be, say, at the Museum of Contemporary Art. You could put Eraserhead in the Museum of Contemporary Art. I'm sure it shows in some art museum. Yeah, and a bunch of people would stare at it for a while and think about it and walk away and think about it some more. But... And it's not that it's not entertaining, but it's kind of not entertaining. Yeah, it's not entertainment. It is entertaining the same way that maybe looking through a microscope at paramecium swimming around in a drop of water is entertaining. It's interesting. It might be a little disorienting and creepy to look at. And the fact that your brain is engaged with something is a form of entertainment, but it's not entertaining in like a, a, a ripping story kind of way. Yeah, I'm going to I'm just going to throw this out here. I know not everybody that listens to this podcast is a gamer, but I know that a certain percentage of you are gamers because you followed me over here from the jank cast. And for that, we thank you. And there's a small percentage of you that followed Eric from What the Fish. So to our <laughs> Are there really? To our science community, we'd like to thank you too. Thanks. But I'm speaking to the gamers for here for a second. There are games out there that you play for a pure fun, like let's roll some dice and move pawns around a board and just, you know, engage in competitive fun. Monopoly is not that game. No, Mon- Settlers of Catan is not that uh, game. I fucking hate Settlers of Catan. <laughs> I know there's some of you out there that like that. I also don't like Burning Wheel, but that is my deal. Not yours. So there's there's those games. There's the fun party games where everyone's getting excited. There's a game of- called Greenlight that's super fun to play, and especially there if you is. like movies. Exactly. It's a game we invented where you take movies and you mash them up with other properties, other movies, and other different styles and trying to create your own thing. It's called Greenlight. It's a game we made up. Yeah. They, they, that's that's one of the fun games. That's that one of the fun games, about. right. Yeah. It's it's like Gonzo and everybody's laughing and having fun. And da, 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 da. So there's these different types of games. Right. So that's, that's, that's one type of game. And then there's the games that I oftentimes tend to play and tend to gravitate towards, which are things like Freeform American LARP, or which is live action role play, and uh, story games where maybe we're, instead of being murder hobos in a dungeon with Dungeons and Dragons, instead we're telling the story of what it's like to be a colonized people. These games are still interesting and entertaining to some degree, but they're also kind of more of an experience. Nobody I know would probably say that like playing a game about slavery is fun, but it's interesting. And that's kind of, there's my long way of getting around to nobody who's really going to tell you about an eraser head is going to say like it was a lot of fun but they're going to say it was interesting it's like a nightmare it's like somebody's nightmare on screen that's when i first saw this movie when i was a kid 
I was there as a little kid. No, I wasn't a little you kid. You weren't a as little a, kid. I was it a teenager. It came out in 77, yeah, so yeah. yeah. Now, I was a teenager when I saw it. I saw it on a video cassette that I rented or I got from the library. I think it was probably a library cassette. And I saw it, and I was blown away. I was impressed. Did I like it? Did I enjoy it? No. I mean, it was hard to watch, but it was a it was almost like a badge of honor. It was like, wow, I finally saw Eraserhead, that movie that everyone said was the weirdest movie ever made. I saw it, and you know what? It was like a nightmare. It's like when you wake up in the morning after you have a nightmare and all those weird thoughts of all those crazy things that were happening in the nightmare, and then 30 seconds later, you forget it all. It's like he remembered it. Yeah, David Lynch, he he knows all his nightmares, all his weird stuff. And I think he's also the kind of individual, and I've known several of these people over the course of the various performing arts areas that I've been in, where it's not enough for them to come up with an idea and put it out there for people to, to ingest. They want to experiment with things. Like, one of the things that we discovered when we were doing some research about this is that during Eraserhead, he doesn't actually do it in the film, but he started experimenting with having actors say their lines phonetically backwards so that he could then take that and run it forwards to create a bizarre alien-sounding dialogue in yeah. his movies. The man and from it, another place in, in Twin Peaks talked that way. Yes, in the Black Lodge. Yeah. Right. So that was like, he was like, I have this idea to do this thing with sound. Let's do it. I don't know when I'll use it, but let's try it out and like fuck around with it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I think what makes something like this stand above other things other than the fact that it was the first one. I mean, and, and being the first one to do this is not insignificant. I mean, you look at like, um, Jackson Pollock's drip paintings and the, you know, the first thing people said was like, wow. And then the second thing people said is, well, anybody can do that. And well, not anybody can do that. But the, the thing was is that he was the first guy to, to make a large scale painting based on these random drips and these random designs and stuff the way semi random semi directed the 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 kind of thing that he did he was the first one to do it and then after that no one could ever do that anymore without copying him david lynch was the first one to make a david lynch movie and everything after that that looks like this is going to be like a second rate knockoff of it so that's that's the first thing is like just being first the second thing is i think that you it can very easily fall down the, the rabbit hole of something like this being pretentious to feel like the director is trying to teach us something or tell us something profound or deep or thoughtful. And I don't think that this is pretense pretentious. I don't think that this is pretense. No, I think that this is really an honest sort of creation of what he wanted to see some sort of private imagery that he had. One of the one of the things I find really sort of remarkable about it is the fact that he will never tell people what his point behind behind this movie was is because he wants everyone to see it and think what they want about it. Clearly, I think the point of this movie is that fatherhood is scary and it sucks and you you become disoriented and struggle with some sort of horror. I think that's pretty much agreed upon as kind of like the theme. If there's a central theme to this movie, it's like being a father of a of a crying infant is like being in charge of some sort of horrifying alien that you have no control over. And I, I guess that's kind of it. But everybody that watches this movie is going to bring their own sort of background, their own sort of psychology to it. And different images are going to stick out to them and mean different things to them. And I think it's kind of a... It might be a cop out if somebody else were to do it and say like, well, you know, it means whatever you want it to mean. I mean, Neil Breen said the exact same thing about his movies. Right. But that's, I think, largely due to the fact that I'm not sure that Neil Breen really knew what he was doing when he made them. Well, I mean, but I think like uh, I'm not going to I don't want to start getting into like really artsy fartsy bullshit. Well, but I mean, I mean like hermeneutics, the idea that meaning is generated by the interaction between the artwork and the observer that it doesn't that the artwork itself doesn't contain locked in meaning that meaning is something that is generated by a mind interacting with some something else now that now now who's sounding pretentious right but i I think it's i think it's a fair way to look at it and i think he created it honestly and i think that's why when i watch this 
I might be put off by it, but I don't feel like this is pretentious. Like I'm being taught some sort of lesson or That's I'm being true. given showing some great art that I must kneel before and, and believe in. I watch it and I find like this is horrifying. I can't look away. These images are very interesting. But I don't feel like there's a pretense to it. And so that's that's the other thing, I think, which kind of elevates this into the realm of art and not just bullshit. Yeah, I, I, I will take back my original like, well, maybe it is pretentious that I said earlier, because I think Eric does make a very valid point. And I think it's actually an interesting thing to think about in the respect of someone has created a work of art. Maybe it's a movie, maybe it's actual lit- literal piece of artwork that you see on a wall, whatever it is. You have several reactions to art, right? Because you have your your personal reaction to art, which is like, I am looking at a big red circle on a piece of canvas. That makes me angry. That makes me angry. And then you have a, another way of looking at art, which is the people who are influential and important, quote unquote, telling you what they think about the art. Where does this fit in with art history, this red dot? Well, also like... It's the reddest red, it's the roundest dot. I mean, well, you know, and, and, and these are all, this is all valid. I'm, but, I'm, but the thing is, is that if you heard about a movie without knowing anything about it, that John Waters and Stanley Kubrick and George Lucas and Mel Brooks and H.R. Geiger and fucking half of probably Los Angeles at the time thought was really important... It would give credence to the art in the movie. Mm-hmm. You may not like it, yeah. but a lot of people do. Yeah. And uh, suddenly, art becomes more than just your personal reaction to it. Right. right. That's it's, why we have critics, right. honestly. Not because we don't know what we feel about things, right? Because we know what we feel about things. We look at a thing and we're like, oh. Duh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, well, the, here's my reaction to it. But the interesting idea about having other people's opinions put upon art is that it can sort of in a mass memory sense change and influence what you think about art yeah absolutely i i I agree 100 percent. i think that also when you have something that is truly artistic which i think this film is you can always you can always take that step back and say you know you uneducated slob from out in the street your opinion and feelings, however this movie makes you feel, is real and and worthwhile, and you can interpret this however you want to. And it may not agree with what the great critics have to say about this movie. You might think it. You might think it's a pretentious piece of crap. You might think it's unwatchable and horrifying. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who have been told you must see this movie, and they watch it and they roll their eyes and say, "Oh my God, what a piece of crap this yeah. is!" Yeah. Because it doesn't make sense. It's ugly and painful. To I, let's let, we keep saying it's ugly and painful. Let's talk a little bit about okay how it's how it's ugly and how it's painful sure megan why was this movie painful to you hmm well we've mentioned that a lot of the imagery is kind of gross to look at and let's talk about the baby the baby the baby looks like uh like a well it's a cow you said it was a cow fetus or something well he never said he never said that it was anything people made david lynch was like this (laughs) Again, like it's the weirdo guy that you knew from our class. It just sat in the back and just drew circles. And then suddenly the circles made sense. He told people at the beginning, he's like, this is going to be the baby. And they're like, how does it work? And he's like, you don't get to know. And they're like, what'd you make it out of? And he's like, I'm not telling. It looks, and most people suspect that at least the head part of it came from the feet, like the fetus of a calf. Yeah. So it has like eyes on either either side of the head and it's got like a little slit nose at the top mm-hmm. and a kind of tiny mouth and it's very slimy looking. Sort of worm-like and it's wrapped up in bandages. Right. And it lays every, on a table sort of mewling. With a pillow under its head. Yes. And it's swaddled really tight. Yeah, in bandages. Yeah. And at one point he the main character's name is henry we should we should mention there are several there are several characters in this film there's henry henry who's the main character who's played by jack nance who uh if you watch twin peaks he was pete martell he was the guy that kept putting fish in the the coffee pot (laughs) 
Yeah, he had a mustache. Yeah, and he, quirky. he was married to uh, the redhead who was constantly scheming and was having an affair with mm. with the hotel owner. <laughs> I watched a lot of Twin Peaks, guys. I love Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks is one of my favorites. The first season, yeah. Yeah, the second season goes off the rails. But that is, I'm going to have a minor David Lynch rant right now. The first season of Twin Peaks is great. The second season of Twin Peaks kind of meanders around a little bit because they fucking canceled Twin Peaks after the second season. David Lynch had a plan for Twin Peaks. It was going to be a three-season arc. One, two, three. They notified him that he was being canceled right about the time they were filming the last three episodes. So instead of having an entire season to take us from the White Lodge to the Black Lodge so we could see all of the things that were supposed to be paying off in the second season, no, we had a truncated, very rushed three-season, or I'm, I'm sorry, three-episode arc that got us from like, over here to the end and it didn't make much sense so yeah fuck you tv executives you were wrong you wanted more twin peaks but you got fire walk with me so there you go well the fans eventually made such a big fuss out of it and also didn't really understand what the fuck happened in twin peaks that they made the movie that's how that happened yeah the movie explains things that 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 maybe we're best left unexplained. I don't know. Anyway, we're, anyway, not, we're not talking about that. I one. went off on my minor mm-hmm. David Lynch rant. But you were saying that the grotesque imagery of the baby is one thing. I think that there's some other grotesque imagery that you could talk about. The lady in the radiator. The lady in the radiator. has grotesque face. She's like a she's like a cute 1950s esque looking lady, right, with little flip hair. Yeah, blonde, like blonde. platinum blonde hair. And and she's a cute smiling, little dress, and, and some like Mary Jane shoes on, and mm-hmm. she's dancing. And eventually, at one point, she sings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she has these two. They kind of look like if squirrels had a bunch of nuts in their mouth. Yeah, like chipmunk cheeks. Like chipmunk like big cheeks. Swollen cheeks, like somebody who had like parotid gland cysts or the mumps or something like that where their faces ballooned out and sort of like lumpy and it's grotesque to look at mm-hmm. i mean she looks well and she's also at one point like kind of dan- they they show her on a stage which is a, a recurring theme in a lot of david lynch films and tv shows and stuff the idea of a blank stage with a spotlight on it, and usually a performer, like one performer. Mulholland Drive has a great moment in the middle of the film, which is kind of where the tilt happens between the story that's going on at the beginning. Two, maybe? Characters switch places, maybe? Maybe. We don't know. (laughs) Uh, And there's a woman that's singing a Roy Orbison song in Spanish, and Mm -hmm. at the end she collapses by herself. And there's not an orchestra, even though there's an orchestra playing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, what I was just saying, it's just a, it's a recurring theme in, in Lynch films. And it's kind of, for me as a performer, kind of a beautiful thing, but yeah. the so, lady in the radiator is grotesque. Those so, grotesque right. imagery, but she's dancing, she's dancing at one point and all of the, I guess they're aborted baby fetuses. They're weird worm like creatures. They're sort of spermy looking. They're sort of wormy looking. At some point he's pulling them out of his girlfriend wife. While they're in bed together, they they kind of look like a twisted up uh, umbilical cord, a little with like a wad of tissue on the end. Yeah, they're gross. Yeah, they're like they're and they're sort of like tumor. bloody and stretchy and rubbery. And and the the lady in the radiator with the weird face is like stepping on them and squishing them, and like slimy ooze is squishing out all over the stage. Yeah. All right. So this is this is unpleasant. But when I asked you at the beginning what made you uncomfortable, I was fully expecting you to tell me the soundtrack. That's what I thought. Oh yeah, no, I thought I thought we were talking about imagery, not Well, we we, we did. Let's shift into that. Okay, so the soundtrack of this movie I don't think soundtrack really is the appropriate term. I think soundscape of the movie. Because there's literally just one song in it, and it's the song that the woman in the radiator sings. Well he plays a little bit on his record player. For like 10 seconds. For like 10 seconds. And then there's like a little bit of an organ theme that you hear sometimes. It was played by Fats Waller. That's true. They yeah, because yeah. that's at the end with the credits. is doing yeah. that. So to describe the way the sound is in this movie, it sounds kind of like it's been filmed in a wind tunnel with steam pipes, with steam escaping, and then also loud uncomfortable like clanging sounds sometimes industrial noises industrial noises. noises and it's it's fairly 
constant throughout the whole. It kind of ebbs and flows. Yeah. Volume and intensity wise. Yeah. It seems to be mostly during scenes such as they are that the soundscape starts out at a low sort of unpleasant drone and starts to build and build as the tension in the scene builds and becomes louder and more intense and more grating and more intense and louder and sort of piercing to the point of where you're going, oh my God, stop, make it stop. Right. Make it stop. And that's someone who doesn't have sound sensitivity. That's Eric. Right. Yeah. I have an issue with sound. I am sensitive to certain sounds, one of which is repetitive industrial noise. And yes, so and there was also that low humming in a which few I also scenes, yeah which is, uh, repetitive industrial noise and like low subwoofer bass drone noises also they trigger a, a condition that I have and so watching the film like we'd start watching it and then it would get more and more intense and I'd be like I might have to tell Eric to turn the sound down and then it would go we away didn't have it turned up loud either no we didn't but it's just those types of noises make that right. happen to me. Right. And so for me, watching the film was uncomfortable because it was triggering a sensitivity that I have to sound. Yeah. So your, your experience of it was probably a little bit more acutely uh, painful than, than it would be for most people. But it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. It's not supposed to be pleasant. No. It's supposed to be unpleasant. And that combined with that sort of mewling, crying, hiccuping Which is another thing baby. that I have problems with. Um, but it's not a... It's a baby sound, but it's not a baby sound. I don't know what it was. It was probably made by a person, like, trying trying to do a fake baby cry, and maybe uh, processors. I'm sure it's on the internet somewhere. Somebody came mm-hmm. up with it, how, how they made the baby crying sound, the creature. But it's it's like, it, it drives you insane. And, and I think that from a very sort of conventional uh, assessment of what this movie is and what it means, this is how it feels, perhaps, to be a young parent and have your child crying, be sleep-deprived, be stressed out, and have this little strange creature there swaddled up that is inconsolable, that keeps crying and crying and driving you crazier and crazier until you start staring into the radiator and start looking at things and seeing things that you know aren't there. That that kind of feeling, I think, is it, the closest this comes to, like, intersecting our own plane of reality, you know what I mean? Yes. Now, here's a question for you. <clears throat> Towards the end of the film, our protagonist's head comes off and is picked up by a young child who then takes it into a store? Yeah. Factory? Something like. Which is then used to make erasers on pencils. Yeah, they take like a core sample. They take like a cork borer. If you guys know what a cork borer is, it's a it's a the, thing for boring holes in cork. The sciency thing? Yeah, it's sort of like an apple corer, if you can imagine, like a hollow metal tube with like a sharp lip, and they stick it into the the protagonist's head, um, the decapitated head. It's a fake head. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look particularly real, but it's still gross. And pull out this core of material, which then gets like sucked into this pencil extrusion machine, and it turns into little rubber pencil erasers. Yeah. So, what were you going to ask me uh, about? My question is, <laughs> what the fuck was that? <laughs> That's that how, how does that fit into your theme of fatherhood? I don't know. I don't know that that one def- fits in in any way. I I, I think of it as. I, when I watched the movie this time, and this is probably only the third time I've I've sat down and watched it. Sure, I've seen parts of it a lot, but this is probably the third time. I've oh yeah, sat we didn't mention the miniature chicken that essentially bleeds all over the place. Yeah, there's these little miniature chickens. That's another interesting part of the movie. I mean, we could talk. When we finished screening this, I said to Megan, we could do six podcasts. On this easily. film, yeah. easily, you could do a minute by minute podcast on this film, and just do a podcast on the first minute of this film, and then a podcast on the second minute. You could do eighty-seven podcasts on the, this, and film. those exist, guys. Those are a real thing. Uh, there's a group that I don't know if they've moved on to a third movie, but for a while they were doing a minute by minute podcast of a film that hopefully Eric and I can get our hands on at some point. We've seen it. It's fucking stupid called a talking cat exclamation point question mark exclamation point yeah and it's the cat's voiced by uh eric roberts who may or may not be drunk on mezcal in a men's room uh, of a rest stop i'm gonna guess yeah and they just they gave him five pages of 
lines and said, just read these into this yeah. recorder. And it was it was like a third generation iPhone. Yep. Recorded in a truck stop bathroom. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so there, are, there, are minute by the minute, there are minute by minute podcasts. This one you could do minute by minute. I'm not saying that it really bears that. It, it, it does. It does bear that level of analysis. I mean, that's part of again part of why this is an artistic achievement is that you could look at this minute by minute and ask people. Like you, you see the like one of the first big scenes is uh, uh Jack Nance. What's his character's name? Henry. Henry. Henry goes over to his girlfriend's parents' house where they're all going to have dinner together, and he meets the family and it's one sort of weird unpleasant interaction after another which kind of culminates <laughs> it's it's hard to even talk about this i know because it's, it's so, like, it's fucking, so weird. fucking weird there's like little cornish game hens that start to come alive on the plate and bleed out from between their legs like bubbles of oozing blood now of course it's in black and white but it's like slimy black bubbles of blood and while this is happening his girlfriend's mother is having some sort of like almost erotic looking seizure at the table which is like that's an ongoing david lynch thing in a lot of his stuff too like characters just suddenly losing their shit and vocalizing in weird ways yeah which i love i love that and the the girlfriend slash wife does it earlier on the couch right Right. And then the scene ends up culminating in the his girlfriend's mother pinning him against the wall and sort of like erotically nibbling on his neck. Yeah. Trying to get him to admit that he impregnated her daughter. I guess. Mm, Yeah, I don't know. And there's a grandmother in the kitchen that's smoking cigarettes. Yeah. And like, like, there's just a lot of things where you're like, wait, wait, what just happened? Because there's one point where they're making the dinner and the mom is clearly like ripping up lettuce to make a salad in a big bowl in the sink. And like she puts some dressing and some stuff in the salad bowl. And then she takes the bowl and she brings it over to grandma who's just hanging out next to the stove, not moving. She's sort of catatonic. Really. Yeah. And then she puts the bowl in grandma's lap. And then she's got the two salad tongs. She takes one of, she goes behind the grandma, takes one hand and puts it on one tong, one hand and puts it on the other tong, and then manually manipulates the grandma to toss the salad in the bowl, then takes her hands off of it, and then puts the, the salad back, like, on the counter. Yeah. And I think that that whole scene, you could do an entire class, you know, you could do a 45-minute class questions and answers and discussion group with what do the things in that scene mean what do they mean to you what do you think they might mean what do you think they could mean and i don't think that you could say well they you know mean anything you want them to mean they don't mean anything you want them to mean they don't mean that you know be true to yourself and things will go your it doesn't it doesn't mean that and you know it doesn't mean that uh, uh you know, 600 years from now, our planet will be destroyed by a, a comet. It does. There's there's so many things that it doesn't mean. What are the things that it does mean? Another answer is could be it means nothing. It means nothing. Which it's is just bullshit. It just means nothing. Which is oh, which is it, the official stance of Jack Nance. Yeah. Which like, is people keep asking him. Well, people kept asking him. Unfortunately, yeah. he is he has passed away. But they they kept asking him over the course of his entire career, like, what does Eraserhead mean? And he'd just be like, I don't fucking know. Yeah. Why do you guys keep asking me? And that's fine. I think it's a valid, of course it's a valid answer. If that's the way you feel about it, that's what you believe it is. You just believe it's like a big hoax and it's a big bullshit and lies and it means nothing. You can look at it that way. But the interesting part is looking at it and trying to come up with what, what could that possibly mean? Why is this woman putting the salad in? Maybe it's her mother. It, Maybe it, it. I think it could probably be her mother. Maybe her mother is catatonic. Maybe this is the only way that she interacts with her mother is by. Maybe her mother always used to make the salad when they were younger, and this is a way that she in, engages her her elderly, incapacitated mother with this sort of tactile stimulation by standing behind her and and working her arms as though she's tossing the salad in some way. Maybe that's what that means. I don't know. But it, what's interesting is, is that it does support some kind of discussion. It, it, what, it, what it reminds me of is like back in my days when I was a therapist and people would come and say, I, doctor, I had a dream. Can you tell me what this dream means? And I go, yeah, sure. And what the dream, what we were taught about how to, how to analyze dreams for people was that oh, there's, there's many different ways that you can do it. The way we were taught to do it was to try to relate it to the 
the relationship between the therapist and the patient and how does the patient telling you about that relate to your relationship that you have with the patient in the room that relationship might be real it might be some sort of projected sort of relived relationship that they they think that you're like a father or a mother or a sister or a son or something and and kind of relating to you that way but it's about you and the relationship and people would say well wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute i had this dream last week and i didn't see you that week and this is about something in my life. This is not about you, the therapist, and how you and me are getting together. And I would say, yes, but you remembered it here in therapy, and you wanted my opinion about it in therapy. And we're talking together about it, and you didn't see me last week. And maybe this has something to do with you remembered this now this way, because you don't always remember your dreams exactly the way you saw. So my point is that you can take something like this and say, oh, it's nonsense, it's bullshit, it means nothing, and then you stop. Dead. Stop. Mm -hmm. Nothing to discuss here. Let's move along. We'll watch a different movie. Let's watch Transformers 2. No. Or no, can, Eric. Or you can look at it and you can say, hey, what could this possibly mean? What does it mean? You know, what, 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 what is he trying to say at, at this point? What is the director trying to say? What is, how does this movie make you feel other than just <laughs> angry and frustrated and, and tortured? Uh, and that's, you can go scene by scene, second by second, minute by minute in the film and say, what, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? How would you describe? Why, why does he see a, a character in the radiator? What does that mean? You know, I was looking at that and I was thinking to myself, have you ever, you know, like staring like when you're upset or distressed or just even bored and you're staring off into space and something and your eyes kind of go out of focus and you look at something and something looks like something else. And you can see like in the pattern of the radiator, kind of like it looks like, you know, the vents on a car or something. And you can sort of imagine that it would be like the front of a car. It's like as you're falling asleep, that sort of weird sensation of like. Like the world of reality is kind of blending into sort of a weird fantasy that you might be having. That's what that's like to me. That's, mm -hmm. that's what I'm seeing when I see that. Now, is that what David Lynch intended? Did he make this film saying like, I want people to see this and think with Algren is thinking no. that this is something. No, I don't think that that's no, the case. I, I think as I, as I was listening to you talk about like how, you know, you would help their your therapy i didn't say i patients. helped i just well <laughs> how you would how you would address i, attempted, I those. attempted to help yes yeah how you would address those questions um i'm reminded of of when i read tarot cards because yeah. i i am hired to do that from time to time i've been reading tarot cards since i was 10 now there are some tarot card readers that are going to tell you it's which, all which right it's all a spiritual thing and it's all connected to the spirits and the blah 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 and the mystical and the this and the that I do not believe any of those things. What I do believe is I believe that my tarot cards have pictures on them that correspond to archetypes that are true for everyone. And I think that in some ways, a film like Eraserhead is filled with archetypes, disturbing as they may be, that resonate for everyone, right? It's a very, to, to get into the whole uh, psychology bullshit thing, uh, this is a very Jungian approach, right? Yeah, I would agree. Carl Jung. When you talk about archetypes, yeah. Yes, in the archetypes. Because the thing is, is that we may not all be fathers, right? But we can relate to Henry in this film on different levels from our different experiences in our life. We've all been responsible for some kind of thing. Maybe it is an actual physical baby. Maybe it is a thing that is on, on an equal playing field as a baby, you know? Uh, uh, an adult, like, uh, uh, you know, an elderly person. An elderly or, person who's catatonic. Right. Or, uh, uh, you know, you're in charge of something that's life or death. You know, you're an EMT or something like that. So you, people's lives are your baby because you got to make sure that they stay whole, etc. Yeah. Or, you, or you've got a dissertation. Sure. That needs to be, that, that, that you have to do work on and you can't remember you know all of the details about it and you have to keep going back and your results aren't what you wanted and you have to keep rewriting and you present it and and it's the same kind of thing where you're, you're in charge of something that you can't you can't fix it sure sure and even some of the very small details in this film too like a chicken bleeding from between its legs i am sure means something very different to i don't know a man watching that than it does to a woman because I think of menses. Yeah. Yeah. And I miscarriages mean, and things like that. Sure. 
but I mean, I, I think that that could be, but I mean, is it, is it an aborted pregnancy? Is it a, is it a complicated pregnancy? Is, does it represent the menses that didn't happen when she got pregnant? I don't know, but you know what? We can talk about it. Sure. We can talk about it. it it's a, it's a springboard board for discussion. And I think ultimately it's what makes it unique. Uh, another movie that, that I would bring in would be, uh, Eyes Wide Shut, which is widely considered to be one of Kubrick's worst movies. But I remember after seeing that movie, having long discussions about all the different things that happened in that movie and what it could possibly, what does this mean? What does that mean? Yeah. What does this mean? And in the end, it turns out that the enter, whatever entertainment, quote unquote, you get out of this movie is, goes far beyond the few minutes that you sit suffering through it. It goes into long discussions with your friends about it. Or 2001, you could, you could say the same thing about yeah, it. Yeah, you could like, say the same thing about what it. What is the last 15 minutes of that film? <laughs> like, what is it? Yeah. How does that it? work? I think they invented a new form of photography and just thought it looked cool. Probably. But I mean, like, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the evolution of humankind, whatever. I mean, but there's, there's always a, a movie that makes you think and wonder and speculate that doesn't have a clear cut answer is in some ways always going to be for certain people, people like me, more entertaining than a movie that just gives you the answer. Mm -hmm. It's more interesting to look at Mulholland Drive and try and figure it out than it is if somebody just gave you an explanation. Well, this is what happened. Yeah. Then you'd go, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I Look, two of my favorite movies I will put next to, one next to each other. And I think this will, this will highlight the entire thing that Eric's been saying the entire time. I am a big fan of Mulholland Drive. What's going on in that film? Why are those little people there there at the end? There's a there's a guy by a dumpster that had a yeah, dream about like, a guy by a dumpster, yeah. and then there's the two protagonists, but are there two? Who knows? Who's who? I'm unclear. I don't know what's going on. So let, that's one of them. And then another one of my favorite movies is Pleasantville, which is the most, we have symbolism that we are showing you that we are actually going to pick up like a brick and smash into your face. There's never any, and I find this kind of an amusing way of saying it, there's never any shades of gray in Pleasantville. If you're unfamiliar with the movie, it is, half of it is in black and white, and that's a very important plot point. Spider-Man's in it. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He's one of the last people to, oops, spoilers, one of the last people to become colorized. You spoiled that Pleasantville? Oh my god. I did. It's an so allegory. Like, so you like Pleasantville? What, what, how do you see that that being similar to something like? I'm not saying it's similar. I'm saying oh, okay. it's completely opposite. Oh, all right. I'm okay. saying the filmmakers in Pleasantville, they didn't want anyone to think about anything other than the thing that they wanted you to look at. We are talking about, you know, uh, an allegory for the civil rights movement. We are talking about people, you know, becoming their full selves. We are talking yeah, about sex creating chaos in a sure. ordered world. All of those things. And they're taking it to such a a concrete level that there's no questioning what the fuck is going on in that movie. It's, it, it's literally like they are walking you through it. Like right. you're two or something. We are going to explain this to you. Yes. And I, I love that movie. I think it's great. It's really cool and beautiful and wonderful, but it is the, it is the exact opposite of what you're going to get in a David Lynch film because Lynch doesn't give a shit. There might be symbols in there, but he doesn't care if you think what he thinks about him. Yeah, and, and what he thinks about him ultimately is not... It's not the, the point. It's not the important thing. It took me, when I was a student, it took me a long time to to accept that. I felt very early on when I was when I was in college and professors were telling me that, that this is just a lot of bullshit to, you know, cover up. You don't know, you don't understand something, so you're just going to tell me it means whatever you want it to mean, and that's just, that's just dodging it. And the thing is, is like, no, it's not. It really isn't. It really isn't. You... Because if you're told what it means, that takes away part of what it's supposed to be about. And you're supposed to be about thinking about it and it's supposed to be about wondering about it. And you do. You think and, you think and wonder about this, about what this film means, every scene in it. But there's no overarching message to the movie, except <laughs> don't get pregnant. <laughs> don't have a baby. Pregnant Pregnancy might be weird and bad. And in fact, uh, when they finished filming this, this movie, the baby, which... Jack Nance nicknamed Spike for some reason. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, they, they actually took the baby, David Lynch took the baby to an undisclosed location, buried it, and then the rap party for the film was actually awake 
for the baby. Yeah. I, it's just that, yeah. that's gotta be a weird group of people to have a rap party with. <laughs> it's could it's, you imagine? No. I mean it's the the creative, interesting people. Who would you rather have for for dinner? George Lucas or David Lynch? Oh, fuck. I mean you know? well like, who would be who would be a more interesting dinner guest? Who would who would you be telling your well, you'd be telling your friends about any I mean, if you saw any of these guys. Let's let's just put it this way. In nineteen seventy seven that might have been a coin flip. Because mm. that's the same year that's, that Star Wars came out. Yeah. And and a young George Lucas, I think, is a, is a different dinner guest than a current George Lucas. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like John Waters versus uh, Adam Sandler. Oh, you know, there's John no- Waters has ne- John Waters in his entire career has never made as much money as Adam Sandler does on a single movie. No, but- well, maybe he has. I, I I don't know. I don't know the numbers. I'm just saying that one is a phenomenally financially successful and popular director who would be a fucking bore and a train wreck to have to sit around and you do anything chew off your leg to get away from that guy whereas the other guy is everything he says about anything is interesting or funny or enlightening or or all of those things all of those things yeah and here you have you know the this this resulting film which you know bears infinite hours of discussion Mm -hmm. uh what more can you want yeah i mean but is it for everybody no, there's going to be a lot of people out there that are going to even watch a little bit of this and they're like, why did they tell me to watch I this? I can't sit through it. That's what I think most people are going to. If you haven't seen it already, if you haven't seen it already, you're probably not going to see it. I, well, you know, that's not true. Things. I don't think like, that's true. I think it's are just... Are people a- who listen to our podcast that are younger than like 50? <laughs> yeah. No, I, know, I know nobody's oh, that old that's listened to it. Yeah, yeah, I think everybody's younger than 50. Look, I, here's the thing, guys. There's a lot of weirdo movies out there. I mean, one of these days we'll watch uh, the, was it the magic? Wait, the Holy Mountain. Yeah, Jodorowsky. Well, one of these days we will tackle a Jodorowsky film and that guy made fucked up weird movies. Uh, you know, there are, uh, shit, John Waters made some fucked up weird movies. There are a ton of people out there that have made fucked up weird movies. It's just, you gotta like get yourself in the right frame of mind to sit down and watch a fucked up weird movie. Because you're not, it's not going to make you, you know, you're not going to want to get up and have some popcorn and have some laughs and blah, 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 and all that kind of shit. You have to commit to seeing a movie like Eraserhead. So what we're saying is you should commit to seeing Eraserhead. Then you can check it off the list. It's worth the pain and frustration. Watch it with friends and then discuss it afterwards. Yeah. And see what people thought about the different parts of it. And I swear, if you give it a chance, suffer through it, watch it all the way through, this movie can give you a lifetime of enjoyment just thinking about it and and remembering all the weird parts. Mm-hmm. It kind of, in a weird way, reminds me a little bit of uh, 200 Motels, what I said at the end of 200 Motels. It's like, most people are probably not going to like this, but it's worth watching it just to see how weird it is and how sort of strangely creative it is. I, I, I mean, I think Eraserhead is a far, far better movie than oh, 200 Motels. Yeah, because but, it, it had some, it wasn't just Frank Zappa wanting to like put a whole bunch of shit on, on video. Yeah, I mean, 200 Motels was, was burdened by all kinds of weird stuff. But the same kind of idea of, you know, open your mind and watch this thing and experience the weirdness of it and try to just kind of groove on that man maybe you should just be stoned to watch it I'm i don't not, know you i'm know, not like, saying that a lot of that those million art students that i that i slandered at the beginning of the episode for making garbage movies after they saw Eraserhead weren't stoned but i'm gonna say that they probably were Thanks for listening to Cinema Super Collider. Follow us on Twitter at Cinema Supercast or join our Facebook community where we post early warnings about our upcoming movie selections and also invite you to join our film discussions. You can email us questions, comments, and suggestions for future shows at cinemasupercast at gmail.com. 
If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. See you next time. Bye.